Romans 1. We're going to finish up Romans 1 this week. And then uh, Ty is off next week. Tim's going to teach, but then Ty's going to come back and take Romans 2, I think, after that. So that seems to be the plan now. Um, Romans, we've been in for, I think, two or three weeks. We've had some uh, Bible conference and some other things that have been erupted. So real quick, who wrote Romans? Apostle Paul. Uh, it was uh, written approximately uh, 56 or 57 A.D. Where, anybody remember where it was written from? Where was he at when he wrote Romans? He, he was in Corinth, and he wrote Romans. And apparently uh, Priscilla and Aquila were, Aquila were there because we read in chapter 16 that they are now in Rome. And also this sister called Phoebe, uh, who many believe was, in, was also in Corinth, brought the letter to the Roman church. It was founded. Uh, we're not exactly sure. It is believed it was founded. Many believe it was founded at Pentecost when there was those there from Rome that heard the gospel for the first time from Peter's preaching and took the gospel back. Paul doesn't get to Rome till a few years later. Uh, he wants to come to Rome. He talks about that. Uh, he ends up at Rome not because of his own will necessarily, but the will of the Roman government who eventually take him there and probably in I don't know, maybe 65, 66 A.D., he's, he's killed. So this is before his death. Saul was, Paul was converted probably in 35, 36, 37 A.D. So this is a few years. But this church apparently is struggling or it, it, it is encouraged in their faith. Paul says their faith is known throughout the whole world. But there's a lot that they need to understand and they don't have the teachers there. So Paul writes this, quite frankly, lengthy letter to them covers all kinds of details. So we've seen the introduction, the, the salutation, Paul's personal feelings toward the church, his love for Rome, his love for the believers, that they encourage each other, that he wants to come and encourage them. And then we've been looking at this sec we looked at the section, the main theme, which is the just shall live by faith, uh, taken from Habakkuk, and that Paul, uh, the, the theme of course is justification by faith alone. Uh, that along with the fact of, of Romans chapter 10, where we see the gospel was for the whole world. It's not just for the Jews or just for the Gentiles, but we will see when we get to Romans 10 that the main theme of the right, just shall live by faith is for all people uh, of all times. And we've been looking last uh, time at this condemnation. It starts at chapter 118 and runs through 320. This whole idea of the wrath of God is poured out upon the unrighteous, and we'll look at that this morning as we uh, finish up here uh, and, and, uh, and move on. So uh, in verse uh, 18 through 23, um, Josh, are you, uh, can you read that verse 18 through 23 for me?
stop stop right there. We'll, we'll go we'll, we'll go back and catch that. So thank you. So we see here there's some really deep theological truths here, aren't there? When we talk about God and His eternal power and His nature, and so here's this new, relatively new church, maybe 20 years old, probably very small in, in members because we read in Romans 16 that they're meeting in the house, a home. And so assuming that it's not a lot of people. So Paul is trying to encourage them and he wants to instruct them. And so he's going through this whole thing about the gospel and how he's not ashamed, the just shall live by faith. But when he gets to verse 18 through 23, he pours out this, the idea of the wrath of God is revealed. So he's, he's addressing believers, but he's also talking to the unconverted. So Paul is talking about to the believers there at the church, and presumably unbelievers, about the unrighteousness of the unbeliever as a whole. Notice here, uh, the wrath of God is revealed in verse 23. Also notice um, the word for in verse 18. Uh, this connects uh, 16, 17, and 18. So the idea is that salvation is by faith alone for or because the wrath of God is revealed upon all unrighteousness. That's the very reason that just shall live by faith or that right, unrighteousness. It's that the, it's because the wrath of God is poured out on the unbeliever and onto, um, onto the, the uh, is completely unable uh, to save themselves. That's why we talk about in Ephesians chapter 1 that we are dead in trespasses of sin in chapter 2 that there is no hope for the unbeliever outside of the intervening work of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul makes that point here, although he doesn't come out and make it mainly, but the idea is, is the wrath of God is poured out on all unrighteousness. And so uh, the unbeliever is totally unable uh, to save himself. Now God's wrath is his indignation. That is, God is indignant towards sin. Someone said, wrath is, only, is the only reaction of divine righteousness when it comes in collision with sin. So God's wrath is in response to sin and to, his, uh, un, to unrighteousness. So today, really, from American pulpits and around the world, you hear very little preaching, teaching, or speaking about the wrath of God. Uh, it is not user-friendly. It is not seeker-sensitive to talk about the wrath of God. You can spend some time on the Internet and read about uh, American liberalism, and you will find that uh, it's not taught. Kevin did a series a while back about how that the cross is considered an offense to some because it's bloody, when it should be an offense to the unbeliever exactly for that reason. But... Uh, we don't want to talk about a bloody cross or about God's wrath. Um, here, um, we hear a lot about God's love. God is love. You see a lot of bumper stickers. I don't know if I've ever seen one that says God is wrath or, or God is angry with the sinner all day long as the scriptures proclaim. Um, so there are others in the uh, religious realms, even in Protestantism, that teach that God is incapable of wrath because he is a God of love, that he cannot be a God of wrath. But 
certainly that's contradictory to the statement here that Paul makes. Um, I would suggest this type of teaching is really from the devil himself, the father of lies, and uh, it is being propagated uh, throughout our country and throughout the world. To deny God's wrath is to deny his holiness. And because God is holy, uh, holy other as it were, and so wrath is a response of a righteous God against sin. Or as in verse 18 says, notice, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. We'll talk about this word unrighteousness later on. But the idea here is that God's wrath is poured out because men are evil. Men are sinners. When we get to Romans 5, we'll look at the, uh, the uh, universality of sin. Romans 3, all of sin and come short of the glory of God. Paul builds this theme all the way through Romans. Uh, Romans 5, because of Adam's transgression, all are under condemnation. And so Paul is laying it out here in the beginning, and he'll build on that as we go through uh, later on into the gospel. So uh, verse 18 uh, talks about his, um, his wrath. God's wrath is one of his divine attributes. We don't hear that much, but there is the attribute of love. It's as much an attribute as omniscience, holiness, faithfulness. And so uh, we need to speak of God and, and understand that his wrath is not something shameful, but it is a natural response of a holy God against sinful man. God's wrath is shown where the most. Of all places in history, where was God's wrath shown? At the cross, right? We, uh, Kevin, I think last week, talked about the word propitiation. That is, the wrath of God is satisfied by Jesus Christ. It's satisfied against the sinner. So if you and I are in Christ today, it's because God's wrath was poured out, not on us, but on Jesus Christ, the, uh, the only fitting substitute for sinners. He was holy and without sin, and yet God poured out his wrath upon us, upon him for us. So as you know, God's going to pour his wrath out either on you eventually or on Jesus Christ. That those are really the two universal options that we have. And so the call is of the gospel is turn to Christ. Turn to him in repentance and faith. So any thoughts before we go on? All right. In verse 18 here, um, notice here uh, the word uh, reveal in verse 17 and reveal in verse 18. It means to uncover or to unveil or, or to... Uh, to free, as it were. And so God reveals his righteousness or grace through the gospel. Notice there, he, he does reveal that. That's the just shall live by faith. But um, the same God reveals his wrath against those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Uh, the word suppress here in the NIV or the uh, King James uh, is, uh, or hold. Uh, some say, some translations have hold. Uh, it has the idea of, of keeping down, holding down, as it were, being on top of somebody uh, and keeping, keeping it down. So the unbeliever, we'll talk about this natural revelation here in a little bit, but 
even when they see truth, instead of bowing before truth and recognizing that God is holy, they suppress it or they hold it down. They keep, keep it down so they don't have to deal with it, really, uh, is the idea. So um, the, uh, some commentators uh, say the preposition in can also mean by. So the thought is uh, one may give lip service to the truth, yet suppress the truth by unrighteous living. I think this is a very important distinction to make here because uh, this calls unprofessing believers into accountability here, doesn't it? Uh, he says um, it, uh, that to suppress the truth, not in unrighteousness, but by unrighteous living because uh, there are those who profess Christ. We see, we'll see that. Um, we've seen that in 1 Corinthians 6 that profess Christ and yet are living ungodly lives. And so Paul is giving a warning here even to those who profess Christ uh, to uh, make sure that you're not suppressing the truth in unrighteous living. So now in 19 and 20 here, notice there's two things. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, this is something that's in, inherent and innate to every person in the world, For God has shown it to them, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. And then he lists those attributes, his eternal power and his Godhead. And then he makes this amazing statement, universal statement, they are without excuse. Doesn't matter what continent you live on, what time in the world you were born, what uh, language you speak or don't speak, uh, he says here um, that they are all without excuse. Now, in the Bible or in the uh, re- revelation of God, there are uh, two kinds of revelation. Anybody know what, what, are, what are the two kinds of revelation that we often hear theologians talk about? General or sometimes it's called natural revelation. Uh, and what's the other? Our Bible is what? Special revelation, right? So God reveals himself to the world in two ways, through uh, general revelation, and we'll see that here, and that's through creation and through his, uh, his, his, his uh, divine attributes, or special revelation. Special revelation could include things like 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul says, I received of the Lord that which I also deliver unto you. So things that came specifically to the apostles, but mainly through God's word, that uh, his special revelation. Of course, Jesus Christ would be an example of uh, special revelation. So here we're talking about general revelation or something called natural revelation. Uh, You'll read about uh, general revelation has been given to every man or woman. They can see or hear or touch uh, and know about God's creation. Now, what's, what is true about natural revelation that isn't true about special revelation when it comes to salvation? Natural revelation or general revelation will never lead someone to Christ. It will lead them to God, but the gospel will not, is not revealed through general revelation. The gospel is revealed through special revelation. So what we're talking about here is general revelation um, Notice, again, Paul's words in verse 20, they are without excuse. 
they have uh, no excuse uh, because they have no excuse because verse 19 says, what can be known of God is plain to them, for God has made it plain. Can't be any more plain than that, right? God has made it plain to every man, woman that was ever born that there is a God, that there is something out there, uh, and it should be clearly seen. Uh, Now, uh, go back to verse 20, uh, because there's a little bit of an interesting phrase here. It's a play on words. It says, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. Invisible attributes, God is invisible, but his invisible attributes, Paul says, can be clearly seen. There's no hiding them. God, the handiwork of God, even though you can't see God, his attributes are clearly seen. His work is clearly seen throughout uh, all of the world. Um, Paul lists, uh, as I said, two of these invisible attributes. Uh, they are... Um, God's eternal power up here. One of his attributes is eternal power. And then your translations may have Godhead. uh, uh, Some of them have divine nature. So uh, his eternal power is revealed and also his divine nature. So what can be clearly seen by by general revelation? What is it that mankind, womankind in general can see? Yeah, the beauty. Did you drive to church this morning, look out the window? You know, uh, Daniel says, I think it's in Daniel 2, that God ordains or changes the seasons, uh, and he's doing that again this year. The beauty of nature. We, uh, we know that uh, when we see natural beauty, it should lead us to think that there's something higher, something more than just, uh, just did it just happen. It, it was it was there. Uh, we can clearly see it uh, through creation. Turn a couple passages. I know you know these, but I think it's interesting because special revelation has revealed some things about general revelation. Uh, Psalm 19. Again, this is uh, David, or musician of David. Uh, reading, uh, speaking here, he says, the heavens declare the glory of God. When you go outside at night and look and see all the stars and all, and, and during the day and you see the sun and the moon, they declare the glory of God. His firmament shows forth his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech and night unto night reveals knowledge. The sun comes up, the moon goes down. Of course, we speak of the moon and the sun is rising and falling, but uh, I'm using that as a, uh, as a lesson here. Uh, There is no speech, no language where their voice is not heard. All of creation can be seen by all people. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their their words to the end of the world. That all of the glory and beauty of God's majesty and his creation. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run the race. It rises, it is from one end of heaven and its circuit to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. It's 93 million miles away. If it's a few million miles farther, we freeze to death. A little bit closer, we burn up. It's exactly where God wants it to be. 
and we could go on and on with scientific um, statistics. Turn to Isaiah a minute, chapter 40. This is one of my favorite chapters. So as a teacher, I get to read some of my favorite verses. Isaiah 40, 21. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Isaiah 40, 21 and following. Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? He who sits above the circle of the earth and inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings the princes to nothing and he makes judges of the earth useless. Scarcely shall they be planted, scarcely shall they be sown, scarcely shall their stock take root on the earth when he will also blow on them and they will wither and the whirlwind will take them away. To whom then will you liken me, says God, or whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things, who brings their host in number, calls them out by name, by the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one is missing, and on and on and on, right? Natural man whether you're in, in Africa, whether you're in China, Indonesia, the United States, it doesn't matter. When you look up at, in the evening or in the day and you see God's handiwork and you see the beauty of his creation, it ought to bring about, if nothing else, a realization that there's something more, something great out there. And his divine eternal power has to do with his sovereignty. Who is it that creates these things? Who is it? Is it not just anyone, but it is, the, it is this infinite in power, this God who is above all. And his uh, Godhead of divine nature is revealed in his handiwork. That is, um, he is seen above all things. Uh, any thoughts or questions? They have surely seen the handiwork of God. If nothing else, they may, it may not bring them to salvation, but it should bring them to a place where they acknowledge God and, and call out, as it were, unto God and, and, and bow in humble reverence to this creator that's over them uh, and, uh, and, and is in charge of them, who has revealed his eternal power, that's his sovereignty, and he's shown it forth in his divine attributes uh, that is certainly his creation. Um, look at Romans 2, verse 15. Ty, get to this in a minute. Uh, he adds here to this list in Romans 2, or Ty, get this in a couple of weeks, uh, 2, verse 15. Not only is there uh, this natural revelation, in chapter 2, verse 10, he says, who shows the works of the law written on their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. 
So besides God's handiwork, besides this natural revelation that God has given to all, he's also given a conscience. And, and uh, Ty, you can talk about that when we get there. But the idea is natural man that rejects God's power, his divine nature, and their conscience are really, as Tom said in the scripture says, without excuse. There is, uh, is no excuse. When you stand before God someday, there will be no reason to say, I never do, I never heard, I never saw, because it's all around you, and it's there. So, uh, any thoughts or Becky? There was, a, there was a sense in which, in the United States, at least for the last couple hundred years, that religion was not only tolerated, but it was upheld, uh, spoke about. Uh, when I was in grade school in the 60s, I think on Thursdays, once a week or month, we would go across the parking lot to the Presbyterian Church and have church school. And we would sing hymns, and uh, we'd hear Bible stories. Mrs. Schott, uh, she wasn't much of a piano player, but she did her best. And so we would hear, even in that public setting now today, and this is, again, the wrath of God is being poured out. Um, I, I, I want to be careful here because I'm not suggesting that this is something from 2 Timothy 3, where the end times, where men will get worse and worse. There, that end times is speaking about from Christ's death until the end. Uh, but I want to make sure we understand that we can see the downfall in culture and uh, it, as Becky said, we can certainly see it in our own country. And it's happened much more rapidly than I ever would have believed. Um, uh, that's anecdotal evidence, but uh, anyway. So let's look at that. Uh, verse 21, it's really clear here because although they knew God, how did they know God? Natural revelation. They saw him. They saw his handiworks. They were not thankful, but they became futile in their thoughts and then he says their foolish hearts were darkened. Even when they know God, besides suppressing the truth, even in the face of overwhelming evidence, they refused to glorify God. They were not thankful for God's revelation. Uh, in fact, it's interesting. Instead of giving praise, verse 21 says they became futile in their search for truth. Uh, I think some of the translations, the King James says vain, in their imaginations, they became uh, foolish, heart was darkened. They started thinking up all kinds of crazy ideas about what it could be besides a God in heaven that created the heavens and the earth. What else could it be? Um, and so we come through all of this. 
this, I'll read this for you. This is the Apostle Paul, and I think this verse makes more sense uh, to me the older I get, and hopefully to you. Paul speaking here in 1 Corinthians 2, uh, verse 14, speaking of the unbeliever, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, they are foolishness to him. Even though they see general revelation, they cannot bow the knee to God because they, if they do, they have to recognize that he has a divine nature and eternal power. And so Paul says here, they do not receive the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness unto him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. That's special revelation. So the unbeliever is held accountable for his rejection of the gospel because it's all the handiwork of God is around him, but he can only come to Christ through the work of the Spirit of God. And uh, if you're in Christ today, Paul would say, where's the boasting, right? If you're in Christ, it's because of God's mercy and grace shown upon you. First Corinthians six. Of all people, we should be most thankful, right? Of all people, most gracious, most merciful, most kind. There we so. So to look at uh, verse twenty-two says, their foolish hearts were darkened, uh, and that uh, notice what the verbiage here: professing to be wise, they became fools. You know, I, you've heard me say, and sometimes it's tongue-in-cheek, but sometimes I'll say there's a lot of smart people that are dumb. Um, and uh, really, this is, this, is the, this is the spiritual proof of that text, right? These are, there's people that are educated and have every kind of alphabet behind their name, and yet Paul looks at them and he says, you're fools. You're fools. Um, I was thinking of Carl Sagan, um, brilliant man, brilliant, uh, and, 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 and from a scientific and mathematical standpoint, um, he said, I would like to think that there's something after death, but I've seen no evidence that there is. I mean, really? Bill Nye, you know, in our own circles brilliant man the bible says you're a fool you're a fool you can have all the phds and abcds and whatever the heck it is behind you and you're a fool I, look you and i are most of us average people you can take a box of toothpicks and you can throw it on the ground all day long and what are you going to have you're going to have a pile of toothpicks. You're not going to build Noah's Ark. You're not going to even build a birdhouse. You're going to have a pile of toothpicks. I know that seems simple, but really that's, that's what we're talking about, right? Is that there has to be, if nothing else, and I'm not suggesting this is true, but at least acknowledge there's intelligent design. At least acknowledge that. That uh, now uh, you may uh, go from there, but uh, you can throw 
and stuff. Uh, we just spent $1,000 and we bought new tires for our car. Uh, beautiful, nice, Goodyear tires are beautiful. What's gonna what am I going to do in four years? Buy another thousand or $2,000 worth of tires. Why? Because the second law of thermodynamics is things tend in a downward fashion. They don't get better. You buy a car, it doesn't get any better. You buy a house, it doesn't get any better. These are things that the unbeliever, they better have a maintenance budget for their house because it's going to go downhill. We have a brand new house, well, four years old now, and things that need to be fixed, need to be done. I know this seems ridiculous, but um, it, it's, it's so obvious, and the scriptures are so um, concurrent. Our public schools and our universities are filled with even some of our uh, so-called religious institutions are filled with this lie that God is not sovereign, that God is not in charge of all things, that God did not create everything, that the six-day creation is uh, a myth. Uh, and so uh, here, here we have it laid out in front of us. Even the simple of us uh, can understand it. Then he says here, um, by the way, um, <clears throat> this is off the subject, but there's a phrase that goes around. It's called perception is reality. It's about the dumbest phrase you can ever have. But uh, anyway, this here um, is... Uh, no matter what you perceive, you may perceive there's no God, but that's not the reality, is it? That the reality is there's a, there's a sovereign God in the universe. He's shown his divine nature and his eternal power to all men, and we are without excuse. So now in verses 23 through 26, um, we'll wrap this up here. Uh, he talks about um, the two really uh, things here, professing to be wise, they become fools and change the glory of the incorruptible God and the images made like corruptible man, birds and four-footed, fouled animals and creeping things. Uh, men become idol makers uh, and it happened from beginning of time. Um, Abraham was an idol worshiper. God called him out of Chaldee. Uh, Moses apparently was an idol worshiper according to Joshua 24. Uh, and so... Uh, there's nothing new. Isaiah 44 um, says here, uh, Isaiah 44, uh, let me just read this real quick here. It's interesting what uh, the absurdity here. The craftsman stretches, oh, uh, let me see, uh, verse 14. He cuts down cedars for himself, takes the cypress and the oak, secures it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a pine, and the rain nourishes it, that it shall be for a man to burn, and he will take some of it and warm himself, and he kindles and bakes his bread, and indeed he makes a god and worships it. So the same tree that the guy plants, he burns, keeps his house warm, he makes bread with it, but he makes a god and fashions it to worship. It's insanity, isn't it? It's, it's absurd. It's insanity. And so I think when you look at this um, in verse 24, I, I think you'll see the absurdity here, what he's doing uh, when he talks about this. is therefore God also gave them up to uncleanliness, lust of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among those who exchanged the truth 
for a lie and worship and serve the creator rather than a creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So I think Paul's taking two absurd things here. One is you cut down a tree and you worship it, or you build a take a rock and you worship it. Here's the other absurd thing. Look at we'll see it right here in verse 26. For this reason God gave them over to vile passions. For even women exchange the natural use for what is against nature. This is complete absurdity. It's it's insane to think that people do this. And I think God, Paul's making the extreme case here for sinful man. Likewise, also the men leaving their natural use. I don't have to go into commentary here, but it's almost, it's insane, isn't it, to even think that this is possible. But here's what happens. Um, the, uh, likewise, also the men leaving their natural use of the woman, can't be any clearer than that, burned in their lust one for another, men for men, committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do the things which are not fitting. That includes idolatry, and that includes sexual homosexuality, deviant sins. Uh, when you think logically, just think logically for a minute, it, it's absurd that you would worship a tree that you cut down, that a man would give the natural use of a woman for another man or a woman for moan. It's, it's insane. But that's the country we live in, and that's the culture we live in today. Is the, is the Bible relevant? Yes, it is. Uh, by the way, Rome, homosexuality was somewhat accepted. But Paul steps in to this culture and says, no, it's not. No, it's not. It's against. And then I'll just finish with this. Um, before we point the finger too much at the uh, idolaters and the sexual immorality and their wickedness, notice how Paul finishes this out. He says, being filled with all unrighteousness and sexual immorality and wickedness, there's also the coveter. There's the maliciousness, those who want to hurt others. There are men who are full of envy. There are murderers. There's strife, deceit. It's probably better translated liars. Evil-mindedness. They are whisperers. Gossips, right? Gossips. Gossips are listed in the same list with idolaters and homosexuals and murderers, liars altogether, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud boasters, inventors of evil things, You've figured, man, will figure out a way to become evil. He will be creative in his deviance. Undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. These are all in the same category. Sin is sin. And uh, Paul says, who know the righteous judgment of God, yet those who practice such things are deserving of death. Not only do the same, but also approve of those that practice it. Is there ever a verse that was more pertinent in our culture than today? Not only do they know it's wrong, 
and maybe not even participate in it, but they're approving of the behavior. And so um, it's a warning for all of us, right? I wrote in my Bible, total depravity. That's really where it starts at. If you're in Christ today, be thankful because it's God's grace. It's his special revelation that's brought you into that relationship. If you're not in Christ, be reminded that the wrath of God is upon you, and it is only satisfied at the foot of the cross through Jesus Christ. So next week we'll move on. So thank you.